So Money, episode 826, the best of 2018, the fire movement. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Ever dream of retiring early or just having enough in the bank so you can truly live a life on your terms? Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're looking back at the year and we had quite a few individuals on So Money in 2018 who are part of the so-called FIRE movement. Have you heard of this? It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Now, just to be clear, because I know there's a bit of back and forth on what this actually entails, from my understanding, and having interviewed so many people who are a part of this movement, retiring early to them does not mean quitting your job or a job. It just means that you're not tethered to your nine to five. You're not working a job that you don't love. You may be still making money, in fact, even though you're retired early, but you're doing it on your terms. One of our guests this year from episode 687 was Tanya Hester, who arrived on the podcast having just retired, and she's not even 40 years old. After saving half of her income for years, she and her husband finally finally reached financial independence at the end of 2017. They left their careers and currently are enjoying outdoor life in Lake Tahoe. And along the way, Tanya started a blog called Our Next Life to document the couple's journey. And she does monetize this. So herein is how she's making her early retirement money. But here's the beginning of our interview when Tanya shared the specifics behind how she arrived at early retirement. Here's Tanya Hester. Tanya Hester, welcome to So Money and also congratulations on early retirement. Now just two months into it. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you on both. I'm so excited to be here and I'm also excited to be retired. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I mean, what? how do you define your retirement? How are you living your retirement? And then we'll talk about how you got here. By the way, you're only 38 years old. What is, is it everything you thought it would be? It, it's funny. I don't think that I would have expected to actually feel retired this early into it. I think that I fully expected it to be a longer process, but we kind of through a weird mix of circumstances, ended up doing a quick trip to Taiwan uh, in mid-January in our first month of early retirement. And in a strange sort of way, that was actually the best thing we could have done because it really got us out of a work mode. We were on the other side of the planet. We weren't awake at the times when people we knew were online anyway. So reaching for our phones or trying to stay up on email was a pointless endeavor uh, just by virtue of time zone. But then we were also out on adventures, going through national parks in Taiwan, which by the way, Taiwan is amazing and beautiful and also really cheap. And I can't believe more Westerners don't go there. Um, but I remember this exact moment when we were in Taroko Gorge National Park next to this crazy, beautiful marble gorge, racing down the road on mountain bikes, trying to dodge like big tour buses full of Chinese tourists. And that was kind of this incredible moment where both Mark and I stopped at one point. We're like, oh my gosh, we feel retired. It's a Monday. Our colleagues are at work. We have no desire to check email or, you know, ask what's up with them. And it really felt like a big switch. But um, as for the rest of it, I think it, what it's going to look like, that's all still 
a little bit TBD. You know, I, I write a blog. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep doing the podcasts that I do. Um, Mark and I are hoping to spend a lot more time skiing. We just got some great snow. So he's out doing that right now. And then I think we're really just excited to keep things kind of open-ended and to see what life looks like and to see what we feel drawn to now that we all of a sudden have so many fewer constraints on our time. So um, it'll be an evolution, I'm sure. Financially, how much did you to accumulate before you felt it was an okay time, a safe time to quit your jobs? We, I, th- I think we don't share our overall numbers. And I think they're, I think, of limited utility to folks anyway. But what I can talk about is multipliers of our annual expenses. So if you know how much it costs you to live for a year, then um, some of this will make more sense. And if if you don't, then I'd really encourage you to start tracking because I think that's really the first key to being able to save to retire early. Um, but we did a two-phase approach. So we had gotten a pretty good head start on our 401k tax-advantaged retirement savings. And that's mostly due to Mark being a super saver from an early age, which is not a virtue that I share. Um, But we had a good amount in 401ks already. So we decided to do two phases where we'd save a set amount in our taxable investment accounts. So just some basic Vanguard index funds. And those would support us until we get to the age of 59 and a half when we can then tap into the 401ks. And so we saved about uh, 16 and a half times our annual expenses in phase one. And our phase one period is about 19 years, a little bit less than that. So 16 times our expenses to get through 19 years. And then we'll also have some rental income kicking in when we get to about about 12 years down the road from now. Um, so that'll help supplement things. And then we've got many more times. So we've got about um, a little over 25 times our annual expenses currently in our 401k, but that we expect to grow. So we're hoping that when we reach 59 and a half, we'll be able to up our standard of living a bit. I mean, we don't feel like we're living a life of sacrifice now by any means, but we should have the ability to do a few more things, travel a little more comfortably. And also we hope give a lot more charitably by the time we get to our 60s or, and kind of live what we'll then call our traditional retirement. Let's also explore the uh, the aspects of your lives, where you live, what you do, how you save, as all those things contributed to your ability to save so much money and to retire early. I often... When I was just having coffee with my friend, um, Libby, who is an editor at Business Insider, and you know, they cover a lot of, um, stories about people who retire early and millionaires. And lo and behold, we do the common ground is none of those people live in New York. <laughs> none of those people, um, you know, probably even lived on the East Coast for that matter. Many of these people, like you got a head start in, in investing because they had the good paying jobs to do so. Um, so talk Talk a little bit about the circumstances of your lives that allowed you to reach this massive goal. Yeah. And I will say, actually, though it's true we weren't living in New York, we were definitely not living in cheap places for any stage of this. So when Mark was saving uh, well, it was in D.C., which certainly not as expensive as New York by any means, but still an expensive place to live. A big chunk of our savings we did when we were living in Los Angeles and living in West LA. So not way out in the suburbs or anything. I mean, we had a pretty expensive lifestyle there too. And then the last six years and the bulk of our really focused retirement savings has been living in Tahoe, which when it's included in rankings comes out as the fourth most expensive place in the country. So I do believe very strongly that you can do a lot of this stuff living in an expensive place. 
it's just a matter of what choices you make. So for us, moving from LA to Tahoe was not technically a, a change in terms of cost of living. In fact, many things got much more expensive. Gas here is among the most expensive gas in the country. Groceries are a fortune. We pay what we call the mountain tax on essentially everything. But a big difference is really cultural. So in LA, if we wanted to get together with friends, we were basically looking at $100 a person for dinner to go out somewhere. And that was just sort of like the standard that everybody we knew followed. And nobody ever said that, but that was just understood. Here in Tahoe, even though things are equally as expensive, people are much more likely to say something like, hey, let's go for a hike or let's go for a bike ride together or let's you know, come over and we'll have game night and we'll bring chips and salsa. Like the stuff that people want to do together is much, much cheaper. And so those are the types of things that I think have really made a big difference for us. But looking back, if we had stayed in LA, I think when we had this aha moment and realized that early retirement was possible, I think we just would have had to change some of our choices and change really our money mindset and try to bring some of our friends along to say like, okay, let's not go out to that trendy restaurant. Let's like come over and we'll make pizza or, you know, do something that's still equally fun, but a lot less costly because that I think is, is the big significant factor more than living in a cheap place. We, we didn't live in a cheap place at any stage of our savings and still made it happen. I, I will say though, like we don't have kids. Uh, we do have above average incomes. So we certainly were helped by factors there, but I think people in the bigger, more expensive cities are also more likely to have higher incomes. So I think that tends to net out as a positive, not a negative. Location is everything for sure. Where you live dictates so much of your ability to save, says the woman who's lived in New York for the last 17 years. Big changes, big results, people. Tanya's blog, by the way, is called Our Next Life, and it is an award-winning blog. Our next guest from 2018 who illustrates and exemplifies all that is great about the FIRE movement is, and her name says it all, Mrs. Frugalwoods. She returned to Sew Money in 2018 as a previous guest, and this was on episode 688. Now, I first introduced you to Mrs. Frugalwoods way back when. I think we were still in the episode 200s, 239 to be specific, and she is the blogger behind frugalwoods.com. At that point, a couple years ago, she was still hacking away at cheating financial independence so that she and her husband could retire. And they were hoping to retire in their early 30s. Good news, they did it. She is 34 years old today, 33 at the time of our interview. They've officially reached that goal and also they're parents now to a young girl and I believe two girls actually now. In this clip, I was really curious to ask her about the future. Where does she see herself in 20 or 30 years? What have they got planned? They're quite young. Do they think their savings will last all that time? Where do you want to be in 20, 30 years? Audience, Mrs. Frugalwoods is 33 years old. I'm almost 34. Um, Okay, I'll give you that. (laughs) Almost 34. A baby by all intents and purposes, respectfully. Um, It's a good thing. It's a good thing. But I I do wonder for those guests that I encounter who are um, under 40 and have, you know, made maybe millions or enough to feel financially independent and they've retired from their nine to five and they're enjoying life now, but how you enjoy your life today is not necessarily how you might enjoy it in 10 years and 15 years. So how do you plan to adjust as you age and as you 
might decide I'm, I want more or less or different. And how, how, what if you figure like you've made projections today, but life happens, right? And you're allowed, I hope you're giving yourself allowance to um, change your mind about how you want to live your life. You decide one day you wake up, you know what? I think I want to live in New York city. Absolutely. And it's funny because we've actually talked about living in New York city one day. And for us, Financial independence and frugality is all about options. You know, we've given ourselves the option now to live here on a homestead, which is what we want to do. And we'll have options in the future if we want to do something radically different. You know, for us now, we really want to live in this place, in these woods for the foreseeable future. You know, it's I can't really imagine us not being here. There's so much that we want to do on our land that takes a long time. You know, we have fruit trees that are coming to uh, maturing and we want to do maple syruping. And a lot of these projects are very long term and it, you know, it takes many years to sort of get your homestead up to the point of production that you want it to be. And so for us, we're still in that slow ramp up of uh, producing the fruits and the vegetables and the things that we want to. So we are so content and so happy here, but it's also true that we do have the gift of options and we do have that choice down the road if we wanted to leave the homestead and and move elsewhere and and live a different life. And so I think it's wonderful to always enshrine those possibilities in, you know, whatever financial plan you make. And I think it's a great point for people who say, oh, well, I would never want to quit my job. Why should I save money? And it's well, because you never know. And my husband and I are both worst case scenarioists. So we're always gaming out like, okay, here's what we would do in a zombie apocalypse. Here's what we would do if we decided (laughs) to make this change, you know, and it's, it's something. Do you have a panic room or something or? (laughs) No, we do not. But the biggest problem that we see with the apocalypse is coffee. We can't grow coffee here in Vermont. So this would be a, a real problem for us. Um, but I, th- I think it's always a good idea to have the financial flexibility to pursue something different if life changes or if you change. Like you said, if you change your mind and decide that you want to do something else, you know, that's certainly what my husband and I did in coming here. It was a radical departure, but we put ourselves in a position where we had a lot of flexibility and that's what we're doing now too. A radical departure. What radical change are you willing to make to dramatically improve your finances? I'll never forget another guest we had on the show one time. John Capitaneus is a producer for ABC News who happened to also squash over $100,000 in student loan debt. And he told me on the show, and I'll never forget, he said, if you want to be debt free quickly, okay, then the question you need to ask yourself is, how uncomfortable am I willing to get? That's not super positive, but it it does really capture the essence of what it takes, right? You have to make a dramatic change. Some might call it uncomfortable. Some might call it dramatic. Some might call it a huge trade-off, but something has to change, really, something substantial. In this case, with the Frugal Woods, it was their location that truly helped, Our next excerpt is from my conversation with the woman who is credited for founding the FIRE movement in many ways, Vicki Robin. She is the co-author of the international best-selling book, Your Money or Your Life. Over 25 years ago, Vicki asked the world this fundamental question, your money or your life. And that book became 
an absolute sensation. It actually just received an update for 2018, which was why she joined me on the podcast. You know, Vicky began the financial independence movement before it was really trendy. She realized the importance of living well on less very early in her life and then spent the last few decades teaching this and other important financial principles to people all over the world. This is episode 757, and I asked her why she felt the need to update the book. Why now, in 2018, do we need to reopen the conversation around financial independence? Here's Vicki Robin. The reality is, is that I had a, a, a grandiose ambition, if you will, um, with the publication of Your Money, Your Life. And several years before publication, I had been at a major conference on this, what was then a new idea called sustainable development. And I was just, you know, the person in the back row. And uh, all of the leaders from the United Nations, all of the leaders of environmental organizations, they all said the biggest driver of, of planetary destruction is... Uh, the level and pattern of consumption in North America and everybody just would shrug and they'd go like, well, we can't handle that. You know, in America, it's, you know, it's your, it's right to consume and it's your right to consume and nine 11, go buy a tie. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, the solution to everything is retail therapy in the United States. And, uh, but I knew because we've been teaching this nine step program in your money, your life for 10 years that, uh, and we'd done surveys of, of the people who had, come to our seminars and we really, we knew that if people followed this program, their consumption would go down by 20 to 25%. That was our, you know, data point. And it was, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty solid. And so I thought I am sitting on the solution to the biggest problem on the planet, because if everybody did this program, we would reduce consumption by 20 to 25% and we would save the world. So that, that was the fire in the belly that got me to work on this for a decade. Um, and we thought that we were going to like, you know, nail it by 2020, no, by 2000. We thought by 2000, we're going to turn this thing around. So I was very, very committed. Uh, and by so the, the short answer is you were busy changing the world, helping the world. <laughs> yeah. But not only that, by the year 2000, it was clear that we hadn't, we hadn't, you know, we changed a lot of lives, but we hadn't touched the, the big thing. And so I sort of retired from that to try to find other ways to change the world or, you know, help in some way. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference and a major thinker in this space of, you know, per, like, you know, sustainable consumption was talking. And I thought, I have heard this person saying the same thing for 30 years. Um, come on, I'm waiting for somebody to 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 take it further than we did. And I realized, oh, okay, fine. My job, <laughs> you know, I, I can return to this work. And especially because I started meeting young people who were so far in debt, preparing for careers that were disappearing. And I thought this is, um, this is almost disgusting. It's deplorable, you know, that, that a society should um, indebt its young people and not support them. So it was that motivation. It was to help young people, another generation. And and at the time, I had no idea that there was something called the FIRE movement. I had no idea about Reddit or the financial independence subreddit. I just thought your money, your life is, you know, faded into obscurity. I was going to give it a reboot and help young people. 
And with that, you have a forward by Mr. Money Mustache, who has been on this show. And obviously, he's huge in the new agey personal finance space. Um, his blog is one of the most well-read, most visited blogs of all blogs, not just financial blogs. Can we save ourselves from this debacle that you see and I see? And I mean, it's, it's no secret that we are an indebted nation. Student loans are drowning the millennial generation. And in some cases, the Gen Xers and the boomers can't escape their loans. They're still grappled with debt. What, what do you think needs to change? Is it just spending less or is it, was it more than that? That's, these are great questions for Anoush. Um, I really like them. Uh, so what I think is we don't recognize that, that consumerism, we all consume from birth to death. We eat food, you know, we, we breathe air. Um, but consumerism is the religion of consumption. It's really the shared religion of our country because, you know, in religious terms, we're at each other's throats. But consumerism, we can all agree on. It's a manufactured desire. It is in service to the corporatocracy, really. It's in service to the industrial production to uh, manufacture uh, needs that really aren't needs. They're just passing um, <laughs> programming from, you know, advertising. This whole system uh, is like, um, it's like alcohol, you know, it's, it's like, it's like a, at very least a habit. And I think an addiction, you know, for some people, it's an addiction, you know, I joked about retail therapy, but it's really true. To celebrate, we buy something to grieve, we buy something to, you know, to start a yoga uh, stuff, we buy something, you know, we've committed to like exercise, and we don't just go out the door and walk, we go to, we buy a gym, we are so um, swept up in the idea that, Every need has a product to fill that need that most people are not conscious of the process. And if you, you make them conscious, they actually don't want to change it. Uh, so I think that, and it's going to be very hard to address that. So what I teach, what we Joe and Dominguez and I have taught for years, he passed away 20 years ago, um, is is that um, to really understand that the money you spend is your life energy. It's really your one-way ticket from birth to death, and you're spending some of it on this thing that you're never going to use and throw out soon. So for self-preservation, you want to pay attention. And when people realize that, um, that you know, with not not spending money is self-preservation rather than not spending money is deprivation, that's what really shifts things. So I think we need to uh, collectively address this and it's going to be difficult. So it's people like you and me and everybody else in this personal finance space who are going to be repeating and repeating and repeating. If you buy something, uh, you know, and put it on your credit card, you're going to actually end up paying three times the, the nominal price because that's how much interest you're going to pay. So we have to just keep explaining to people the consequences of putting themselves in debt. Uh, and, um, and then also, you know, just even things like the big ticket items, like the, the major thing that has increased in the last 25 years is the cost of college education. Yet there are other countries where you can get a free college education. In Cuba, you can be, go all the way to being a doctor for free. You know, so we are sort of narrow focused on 
a, you know, a set of colleges and we mentally have them ranked according to status and the highest status ones, frankly, are going to cost us a hundred grand a year. It's, it's insane. (laughs) It's insane. And we have to see that it's insane. And it's insane, not because I say so, but because you realize that you do not want to do this. And, and so there's, you know, once you realize that, once you've freed your mind, once you realize, you know, I'm in the matrix, you know, this is, I'm in the Truman show. Um, <laughs> you know, once you realize that and you develop sort of a no oh shame, gosh. no blame sense of humor about it or, or sense of disgust or whatever sense you develop, then, you know, then you're open to the strategies, but you have to like see through the wizard of Oz, you know, we see we have to see behind the curtain yes. in order to do that. You know, I totally feel like I'm on the matrix all the time. When I'm on Instagram especially and I'm seeing advertisements for things that I thought to buy or have purchased, the internet is in our brains, people. Let's be super careful about all the hyper aggressive marketing these days, right? By the way, your money or your life has sold over a million copies. It's in about a dozen languages and it remains one of the preeminent guides on personal finance in existence. You can go to yourmoneyoryourlife.com to check it out. And for the full interview with Vicky, go to episode 757 at somoneypodcast.com. Finally, let's revisit my conversation with Andy Hill, episode 814, who is the founder of the blog and podcast, Marriage, Kids, and Money. Andy is a big proponent of financial independence and retiring early. And over the past eight years, he and his wife, Nicole, have paid off $48,000 worth of debt. They also paid off their mortgage, over $400,000 there. And they've increased their net worth from zero to $750,000 in eight years. The journey came with its challenges, of course. Um, He talks about it on his blog and on his podcast. And in this clip, you're going to hear Andy and I talk about what motivated him and his wife to join the FIRE movement. And then how are they benefiting from couples counseling as they achieve their money goals? Here's Andy Hill. Let's talk a little bit about how you ultimately built the net worth of $750,000, starting with debt. I know that you follow Dave Ramsey's seven baby steps and you had a budget, obviously, with your wife, Nicole. But what was really, we would say, an integral part of your ability to transform? Yeah, I would say, you know, you, you definitely hit it off on, on the on the right head there. Um, I got kind of a little crazy about Mr. Ramsey in uh, 2011, found his book right around that time where the, you know, the uh, we found the ultrasound and we knew that we were going to be parents. Uh, that was one of the first books that I read. And uh, the, the, the way that he wrote it, it was very, it, it clicked with me very well because it was a step process, the step one through seven of, of what you can do to, to build wealth and protect your family. And I'm a, I'm a rule follower. I like I like steps, so I ate that thing up like crazy. And as we were going through the process, uh, uh, some conversations that uh, started to happen between my wife and I, uh, I quickly realized that her and I have different views on money. You know, I'm I'm I am naturally a saver, or I'm naturally someone who wants to you know work on these goals, and she wants us to enjoy life and and live for today. And there's nothing wrong with either one of those. Uh, but the way we communicated about it in the beginning uh, didn't really help kick us off in the right spot. And I'll take the blame on that one. Honestly, uh, I read the book and I came up to her as she was uh, coming through the door one day from from work after a really busy day and came up to her and I said, hey, sweetheart, I've got a plan for our family. 
first things first, we need to sell your car. (laughs) (laughs) And she looked at me after her long day at work, you know, just catching her right at the door and just sort of like shook her head and walked right by. It's like, what are you talking about, guy? And for me, I'm like, "What what did I do wrong? You know, this book says it all. How come she doesn't know? How come she doesn't understand? You know, surely if she just reads the book, she'll get it, right? Um, but through a lot of trial and error after that moment, I realized that I, I, I have to stop talking about the numbers or the, the, the debt structure or the, or the monetary goals and really talk about the emotional side of things with her because that's really where we start to connect. And that's, that's some of the things that I learned early on in the relationship and that I'm still learning today, eight years later, that we talk differently about money. And that's mm-hmm. okay. It's a great thing because she helps me to be a more relaxed, fun, easygoing guy. And I help her plan for the future. So I think when we can work together and combine those superpowers, <laughs> we could become a super couple. That's excellent. And it's true. Most couples, opposites attract and it is very true when it comes to our finances, savers tend to attract spenders. And at first, it can be really exhilarating. To your point, you know, you can kind of live vicariously through one another. The saver finds a thrill in kind of being with somebody who likes to spend. And then the spender who might be uh, comforted by being with a saver. But if you don't communicate it around it properly, if you don't express your emotions, understand where you're coming from, it can it can backfire. What are you learning specifically in marriage counseling? What are some of the action steps that your counselor has uh, suggested to the two of you to help you communicate better around this, come closer to your goals around this? Yeah, it's been really revealing. And in, in the beginning, I was a little bit hesitant to go because, you know, there's this stigma around uh, marriage therapy where it's like, oh man, things must not be going well. So they're going to marriage therapy. You know, I quickly flipped the switch after after Nicole brought it up to me and uh, after we went for our first session and I thought, wow, wow, this is this is incredible. A third party thinking of it as a coach that is helping us through our tough times, you know, or helping us communicate better. You know, if you were not, you know, not physically fit. What would you do? You'd partner with a coach, right? To help you get there. Why not do the same thing with your marriage? And that's kind of what I found as I went, you know, past the first session and I started to get excited about it. Then I'm the one booking the next session. I'm just like, okay, when are we, when are we going again, sweetheart? And uh, she got really excited about that. And so did I. So some of the things that were revealing to us were the way that we were communicating with each other. You know, uh, when when we're really busy with our little kids and they're kind of hanging on our legs and we don't really have much time to talk with each other, this set aside hour that we go for our session is incredible for our marriage because some of the things that we say in passing uh, that are really important, like uh, our plans for the weekend or our plans for our lives or our financial decisions can be uh, interrupted pretty quickly when you got a six and four year old hanging around your legs. <laughs> and the way that we communicate, and we already knew this from the beginning, is that we we speak very differently about money. So, you know, when, for example, if I talk about, hey, I think it would be great if we maxed out our 401k, to her, that sounds like, wow, she wants to, he wants to take more money away from us enjoying life today. And then when I hear, I heard her say, hey, I think it would be great if we completely decorated our basement. What I heard was, wow, she really wants to take away my ability to have financial freedom. But what really was broken down in the conversations with our marriage therapist was, 
actually, you guys are saying the exact same thing. You're just saying it in a different fashion. And you are interpreting what your spouse is actually saying with those messages. So when Andy says he wants to save for the future, he's saying he wants to protect the family and give them an opportunity to enjoy life and not think about money and have more fun. And then when Nicole says, hey, I want to decorate the, the basement or do something new in this house, she wants to, she re, what she's really saying is I want to create a warm home environment where we're having memories together and creating fun. And how could somebody say no to that? I mean, th- when, when, the, when the message was broken down that way by our financial therapist, it just helped us reveal, wow, there's no evil motivation from my spouse. There's no, there's no uh, desire for us to, to not have what we want. There's actually the opposite. They want to create an environment that is uh, family-centric and, and full of love. And that was a really revealing moment for me in therapy. So much props to Andy for being open and honest with us on the show about he and his wife and their couples therapy. You can follow him at marriagekidsandmoney.com. And this was episode 814, if you'd like to go back for the full conversation. And that's a look back at the best of 2018's fire movement guests. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm really looking forward to showcasing more individuals in the new year who are making a financial difference in their lives. If you're that person, if you're someone that fits this bill, or you know someone that you think we should know about, please get in touch. Just go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and that's where you can tell me everything. What's on your money mind, advice for me, tips for me, guest ideas. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.